Welcome to another episode of Six Questions. I'm Trent England with Save Our State. Glad to be here with a uh, real freedom champion and someone who knows a lot about education policy, probably more about uh, you know school choice and the fight for parental rights and education in the state of Oklahoma, which is where I live uh, than anybody else. Brandon Dutcher is the Senior Vice President of Policy at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, where I'm also a fellow. And I asked Brandon to come on and talk with us about education, about journalism, uh, which is Brandon's background. And uh, Brandon Dutcher, welcome to Six Questions. It is great to be with you, Trent. So let's dive right into it. The first question is about this trend uh, that that people call wokeness, you know, that's that's a shorthand that encompasses a lot of things, you know, from critical race theory to drag queen story hour, um, all of this insanity that we see out there. How did this go from San Francisco, New York, places like that to Oklahoma? And it, it might be good because we have listeners and viewers all across the country to to make sure people understand this really is in places like Oklahoma and Kansas. Uh, you know, this is not, you know, if you're out there on the coast and you think that there's a part of the country that hasn't gone crazy, that's not the case. So, Brandon, you know, let folks know what's going on and, and how did this happen? Well, and Instapundit readers will know because Glenn Reynolds periodically will post an article on the latest, latest craziness from the University of Oklahoma and, and comment, you know, how, how is this happening in one of the reddest states in the country? You know, why is the legislature and the governor letting this go on? And, uh, you know, our friend George Leaf at the James Martin Center contacted me and said, what is going on at the University of Oklahoma? You guys need to write an article for, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Um, how did it happen? I mean, the short answer is the long march through the institutions and it's, it's captured every place, including the University of Oklahoma. I mean, the diversity, bureaucracy. I mean, the chief, get this, the chief diversity officer at the University of Oklahoma is paid a tidy $19,000 a month. And beyond that, it's not just her, it's the entire bureaucracy. And it's metastasizing the way bureaucracies do. And of course, these people have to do something to justify their existence. So, I mean, lately you saw... Uh, they did a drag show for students to explore their drag identity and explore their gender identities. It, it just goes on and on. Um, so the diversity is a problem. The group think is a problem. The cancel culture is a problem. Even at, at OU, where a well-respected law professor was stripped of his administrative duties for having the audacity to express his Christian beliefs, not even in class, but in private writings. Yeah. Um, You've got a volleyball player at OU who was uh, expressed her conservative and Christian beliefs and uh, her disapproval of being forced to watch a, an anti-Trump film. And she had to take, you know, re-education uh, <laughs> to unlearn her trans and homosexual negativities. I could go on. I don't want to bore people from it. But even even the phrase boomer sooner is considered harmful. OU's diversity training warns students that that phrase could be hurtful and problematic. So uh, it's a problem. Yeah. And it, I mean, when you capture the university, then you capture the teaching training programs, which means that that is 
then metastasizing into K-12 education. Yes. And I mean, it really is shocking. And I think it's, I think it's hard for people, you know, I think it's hard for some Oklahomans or, you know, if you're in, as I say, I mean, Kansas, Nebraska, wherever to, to really own up to the fact that this is going on in our States. And I think that people in some of these other States just don't realize how widespread this is that, the same books that have been found in, you know, in some of these these parts of Northern Virginia that are basically the outskirts of D.C. And you might say, well, obviously, there are a lot of crazy people who live there because they work for folks like Nancy Pelosi and, you know, whatever. So, you, you know, it's easy to kind of put, I think, those places in a box. But the same books, the same curriculum have been found in suburban schools in Oklahoma. I mean, that that is something people have to wake up to because, you know, I, I think that uh, I think there are a lot of folks who still don't understand just how serious all of this is. Uh, one of the solutions, Brandon, and my second question is is school choice. This is something that West Virginia has done. Arizona has done. Um, Oklahoma, like many states, has some school choice programs. But there's a lot of pushback as as you have worked very hard to try to get universal school choice, basically, yes. you know, full parental rights and education. And folks push back on that and they say, well, that really is just a handout to the wealthy or, you know, maybe it helps the middle class, but it doesn't actually help most people. It doesn't help the poor in particular. Brandon, what's your response to that? Uh, Trent, I once saw a sign on the marquee. This is at a at a upper middle class neighborhood in a relatively wealthy suburban district. And the sign on the marquee of this middle school says, must have June or July utility bill. Okay, right. So people are practicing school choice, real estate-based school choice. Yeah, yeah. So what that means, just for, for people who maybe haven't, you know, been in that situation, to enroll your child in that school, you have to show a utility bill with your name on an address in that district because, because people are, I mean, what that tells us, right, is people are trying to get their kids into that school and being rejected because they don't live in that area, right? I mean, is that, do I have that right? Right, absolutely. And, and the school, the district is saying, look, people are paying higher home prices, higher property taxes to get into this district. We're not going to let just anyone in. So, you know, there's your school choice for the rich right now, right there happening in public schools. Um, yeah, I, I think people don't often, you know, before I started talking with people like you, it's just, I mean, anybody who's ever gone to buy a house or a condo or anything, what school district is it in? What right. elementary school? All of that. I mean, when you, when you, and that's just conventional wisdom. So people don't, I mean, I never really thought about it, but when you step back from it, I mean, you think about how perverse that is, right? I mean, <laughs> it, you know, if if I have a little bit more money, then I can live in this area rather than this area, and my kids have a better future because I'm on the other side of this line. But if you don't have enough money, your kids have a worse future because you're on the other side of that line. And we just we have been we have been brainwashed to just accept that that's just the way it is, and that if we try to change that somehow. That's like, yeah, I mean, sometimes people even use terms like segregation for trying to break down those boundaries. Right. I mean, it's, it's madness. So, sorry, Brandon, I kind of interrupted you, but no, it's, I, it's fascinating to me. It's perfect. And, you know, not to break news on your podcast, but hey, the rich already have school choice. 
Yeah. Right? They move to a neighborhood they want, or they just write a check to go yeah. to an elite private school or a Christian school or whatever. The rich already have school choice. You mentioned Oklahoma has, we do have two programs. We have a voucher program and a, and a tax credit scholarship program. We've had it, each of those for more than a decade. Guess who does not participate in those programs? The elite private schools, the ones where tuition is 23000 a year. They don't even participate in those school choice programs. But you know who does? I know you know who does. But schools like Positive Tomorrow is a private school for the homeless. Uh, schools that are serving low-income Hispanics, low-income minorities in North Tulsa. Uh, private schools, you know, residential sober high schools for, for kids who are addicted and who cannot go back to their public school because there's drugs in every hallway. So they go to the, they get a school choice scholarship and go to a, to a school like that. Uh, I think of the girl who endured a living hell of a childhood with all sorts of abuse and led her to drug addiction. And then her life was completely turned around at a little Christian school in rural Oklahoma in a town of 400 people, you know, uh, any number of private schools serving autistic kids in Oklahoma, kids that are bullied to the point of suicide. I mean, do I have to go on and on with examples of how school choice is not for the rich? It's for, you know, the rich already have it. This is for everyone. And, and by the way, I'm not against school choice for the rich. Everyone should have, I mean, last time I checked, Public school eligibility was for everyone. Yeah. Right. I mean, so if a if a billionaire can send their kid to a twelve thousand dollar a year public suburban school, what's so scandalous about a six thousand or seven thousand or eight thousand dollar voucher or ESA or whatever? So yeah. it, it, it is it strikes me and maybe this is, you know, I'm just a I'm a big fan of GK Chesterton who wrote some wonderful essays. Uh, making fun of prohibition in in America. Of course, he was a British commentator. And, uh, you know, it strikes me that public schools and prohibition have this in common, that they're ostensibly for everybody, but they're really imposed by the rich on everybody else. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was continually Chesterton's uh, uh, dig at prohibition was that the, the rich, you know, the rich didn't change their drinking habits when they imposed prohibition, right. but they were they were concerned about everybody else. They wanted to lock everybody else into the system that, of course, they would never actually impose upon themselves. Right. And uh, yeah, there's nothing nothing completely new under the sun. <laughs> so, so, Brandon, another question on education, uh, you know, the, the Department of Education, I mean, for, at least for, for people like you and me, I think we can still say the Department of Education hasn't really been around that long, right? I mean, people think of the maybe the golden age of American public schools, certainly the creation of American public schools. There was never a federal Department of Education uh, back then, uh, but we have one today. A lot of Republicans, conservatives have called for uh, getting rid of the federal Department of Education um, what what do you see as the importance of decentralizing control, getting rid of federal power in education? I mean, how how will that actually help educational outcomes in our country rather than, you know, just spending more money on bureaucracy in D.C.? I think of Sobern's quote, the U.S. Constitution poses no serious threat to our form of government. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> U.S. Department of Ed, you know, Jimmy Carter's payoff. <clears throat> of course, it's worthless. Of course, it's harmful. Of course, it's money down the toilet. It hasn't helped. I've heard people argue, I think it's probably right, getting rid of it. Oh, obviously, we should get rid of it. But still, the federal programs will go on and, and so much goes on. So I don't spend a lot of time, you know, let's abolish the Department of Ed, although we should. Um, but federalism is the answer. We've got to enact school choice programs in the states, uh, get people, give the parents the ability, the power, the purchasing power to do what they want with their kids, which is, I think we have that momentum. Thanks to COVID, thanks to what people saw when they were shut down, thanks to libs of TikTok, thanks to all these forces coalescing, um, I think the the time is right for uh, a renewed federalism god bless arizona god bless west virginia it's happening left and right and hopefully oklahoma will be the next one in, in 2023 so uh talking here with brandon dutcher he's the senior vice president for policy at the oklahoma council of public affairs brandon your background is as a journalist we see a lot of change in this area, uh, especially over the last 10 years. And I think it's there's no sign that that is going to stop. Uh, there's a lot more independent journalism. Uh, many of our major newspapers have have actually failed and, and gone away. Um, what do you see as you look ahead in in journalism and uh, and talk a little bit also about the the work that you're doing at OCPA? Uh, to to make sure that people can get good information, particularly about what goes on in their state capital, which is so important. And, you know, I think is one of the areas hardest hit by these changes in, in the media over the last few years. You know, absolutely. Um, lots of change, lots of churn. I remember when I started at OCPA uh, in 1995, and I would have an op-ed in the Oklahoman, which is, was and is the state's largest and oldest newspaper. And at the top of the paper, their tagline was more than a million readers every Sunday. And then last month I checked their circulation, uh, total paid and print electronic copies, um, 24,560. <laughs> and so obviously the rise of the internet, you know, the, the landscape of the industry is changing and that creative destruction is fine. I mean, the horse and buggy industry was not going to survive Henry Ford, right? Yeah. There, there may be newsletters, you know, HOA newsletters in big communities outside of Phoenix that have that level of right. <laughs> <laughs> but the journalists, I mean, it seem, they seem hell bent on exacerbating the problem of industry trends by just doubling down on their leftism and alienating their core readers or at least half their core readers. Um, we published an article not long ago called Contempt of Customer. The Oklahoman has lost its way. And I mean, I, I put that on Facebook. It's got like 800 likes, 229 shares, you know, like 500 comments of people saying, yep, i too liberal. I, I quit. Yep. After 30 years as a subscriber, I unsubscribe, you know, on and on. And you just see, I'm, I almost see their circulation numbers dropping in real time as I'm reading the comments. But um Trust is at an all-time low. Gallup found in September only 7% of Americans have a great deal of trust and confidence in the media, and 27% have a fair amount of trust. So Gallup says this is the first time that the percentage of Americans with no trust at all in the media 
is higher than those with a great deal and a fair amount combined. Um, and, you know, Rasmussen found in May of this year, 58% of U.S. voters agree that the media are truly the enemy of the people. <laughs> you know? So it's it's bad. But but yeah. so you see the decline of these for-profit, formerly for-profit papers, and you see a rise in nonprofit journalism. Um, of course, it's overwhelmingly on the left as well. Uh, ProPublica and these, you know, Texas Tribune. Here we have Oklahoma Watch and others. But it, it provides an opportunity, as you alluded to, um, much in the same way that the monolithic wokesters of late night comedy have opened the door for Greg Gutfeld to come in and just clean house. Um, and he's he's on fire. Conservatives have an opportunity like that in journalism, and we, we're doing that at OCPA. We have our Center for Independent Journalism. Ray Carter, of course, is outstanding. Uh, and he's done any number of stories where, you know, he'll go to the same press conference as the AP and the Tulsa World and the networks and the NPR affiliates, and they'll all come out of there. But Ray will ask one question that's different from the herd questions. And so Ray will have a completely different story and a completely different uh, story formula that readers wouldn't get elsewhere. So it's a, it's a terrific opportunity. It's one of the, I think OCPA is, is among the leaders of the state think tanks that of course we do policy work, policy analysis, but our journalism is just as important. Yeah. And I think Ray produces more stories about Oklahoma state government than the AP does probably than, you know, than the Oklahoman does, uh, I mean, it's it's amazing what, you know, what a journalist can accomplish when they're not, you know, when they don't have to check every day for the latest, uh, you know, changes to woke speak. Uh, right. You know, I know up in Michigan, Michigan Capital Confidential does yes. a great job doing the same thing. A lot right. of states have that. You know, wherever wherever you are, uh, you know, listening to this conversation, if you're not tuned into the the nonprofit journalism that comes from you know you could say a conservative perspective but really a lot of it's just from a, a perspective of, of not not grinding that left wing axe uh in, you know in in all of the coverage um you know you, you should look around and see if you can find that in your state because uh, there are a lot of great resources out there. I, I don't know that every state has you know what, what we have in Oklahoma, what they have in Michigan, but I think many do. Uh, Brandon, uh, the the penultimate question here. Uh, I, I know you and I have this interest in kind of the 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 development of the American conservative movement and you know what used to be called fusionism. This idea that you have people who are conservative, people who are libertarian, or you know who sort of lean one way or the other. But uh, you know, National Review and uh, Bill Buckley and Frank Meyer and others develop this idea that, you know, you can put all this together and build a political coalition uh, of people who may have, have, you know, principles that, that at the, you know, at the limits are, are in conflict. Um, but when it comes to policy and politics, people can work together effectively. That seems to be breaking down. I mean, do you, do you see a future for fusionism on the, on the right, or do you see something else happening as we move ahead toward the 2024 presidential election and beyond? Honestly, I, I'm really, although that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating question for political philosophers and 
and historians, and, and I'm even, I'm interested. I love reading those taxonomies of the right and, and following, but it, you know, I, at some point I snapped to and said, oh, wait a minute. Okay. Here, I'm, I'm at one particular policy organization in one particular state in our federalist system. And so I've got a landscape, I've got policy research and, and advocacy that we're doing. Uh, so what, what, what does it look like here? I mean, we have, heck, even at our OCPA staff meeting, you go around the table, we've got, you know, all the various strains of conservatism and libertarianism and, you know, and it's all interesting and lively, but, you know, at, at some point, okay, what, you know, what does it matter? We're, we're here and we can do perhaps in Oklahoma, you know, what this year we got a, a, a bill passed um, to not let boys in girls' bathrooms. Uh, and everyone in Oklahoma on the right, including the libertarians, <laughs> were no. for that. I mean, maybe you know, California couldn't have done that. Different fusionism in California, perhaps in Oklahoma. Um, so, you know, what Grover famously says of the center-right coalition, we, we don't eliminate conflict, we manage it. And I think the workplace, not the not the uh, not, not the, the blue muppet. No, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think that's that's what we do, and you manage it in fifty different ways and fifty one. Um, so I don't know. You you may know better than I. I love reading about the history of the conservative movement and all the permutations, and here come the napcons and all this, and it's it's great. But at the end of the day, I've got I've got work to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a great answer because, you know, while I mean, I, there's no question, you know, Richard Weaver ideas have consequences, right? Ideas, ideas matter. And we've we've seen, you know, what the other side has done with a combination of, you know, bad ideas. And as you said in the beginning, the long march through the institutions are just taking things over one by one. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think. It's it's interesting to see people really get caught up in that, as opposed to focusing on, you know, what do we actually do um, to to you know, on the one hand, protect ourselves from some of these terrible ideas and to to change the path that we're on, uh, and certainly the work that you're doing in education and in journalism, right at the cutting edge of all that. Um, Brandon, our final question for first time guests on six questions is always the same. That is, who is your favorite founding father and why? I'm going to throw you a curveball. You think I'm going to say a certain Presbyterian minister, <laughs> the only clergyman to sign the declaration. Um, Witherspoon would, would not be a bad answer. It would not be a bad answer. I love John Witherspoon, and I love the, the remark from the British parliamentarian uh, who's, who lamented that Cousin America has run off with the Presbyterian parson. Um, however, I'm going to say George Washington. And that may sound like a cop-out. I don't, I don't care. Who else could it be but George Washington? Yeah. I mean, come on. Indispensable. Um, in war, in peace. I mean, just, you know, the soldiers are, you know, there's privation and sickness and, and despair and, he keeps the army together just through the force of his character and his leadership and his moral authority. And, you know, he's, you think of these, you see these football players interviewed, they love their coach. I'd run through a brick wall for that guy. Right. And soldiers, they don't want to disappoint George Washington. He's up there giving the pep talk. 
hang in there, boys. Providence is on our side. We will prevent, you know. Um, so, and then, as you know, better than anyone, indispensable for the Constitution, for the miracle at Philadelphia. Could it have happened without his leadership? Could it have happened if everyone didn't pretty much know he would be the first president? Um, ratification, could that have happened if everyone didn't know he was going to be the first president? Um, yeah. So not to, I don't mean to deify the man. You can't do that with any human. We're all fallen, but, but he's, he's not like us. You know, he is uh, the character, the devotion to duty. You know, he'd rather go back to Mount Vernon, but he, it's his duty to lead the war effort. It's his duty to lead the constitutional convention. He does his duty and uh, indispensable. Yeah. Can't uh, can't argue with that. Brandon Dutcher, Senior Vice President for Policy at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Thank you for being a part of Six Questions. I enjoyed it, Trent. Good to see you. Yeah, great to uh, great to have you here. Great to have all of you out there watching and listening. Thanks for being a part of what we do at Save Our States. Of course, we defend this system of federalism that is right at the foundation of our Constitution, of our Republic. We do that primarily by defending the Electoral College, which is one of the pillars of federalism. Uh, we're about to enter the uh, the presidential election cycle here, aiming towards 2024. It's a great opportunity to talk about the way that our structure of states benefits all of us, benefits our politics, helps to keep our elections uh, safe and uh, and productive. Uh, as we force candidates, parties to go out and build uh, larger coalitions than they would have to build otherwise. We're going to talk about that a lot in the 50, in the uh, episodes of Six Questions that are ahead. I hope you'll stay tuned for all of those. I hope you'll stay in touch with us at Save Our States via SaveOurStates.com, via our email list, our Facebook page, our Electoral Defenders group on Facebook. If you want to be more engaged in the fight, you can join us there. Until next time, I'm Trent England for Save Our States.